We're walking through the Gospel of John, and we are in John chapter 6. So please look, if you have your Bible with you, open there. John chapter 6 has a lot to do with appetite. Last week we looked at uh, the feeding of the 5,000. The chapter begins with hunger, literal, physical hunger. Uh, And then proceeds to satisfaction. Jesus supplies what's needed. Then more hunger follows, but many are left unsatisfied as the chapter proceeds. Giving, giving and growing a, an appetite for truth was certainly part of what Jesus was doing as he ministered during that first year gathering disciples around him, gathering a community. And so he was He was provoking hunger for truth in them, calling it, drawing it out. And the Lord knew. He knew, of course, everyone prefers a beautiful lie to the truth, especially a hard truth. People have an endless appetite for false hopes. I'm saying this. You have an endless appetite for false hopes. I I've just got this cavernous hole ready to be filled with false hopes. We have that. And so he was giving his chosen disciples a steady diet of wonder and awe at what he was doing, along with a simple truth about who he is and how God's kingdom works. They needed the awe and the wonder so that they'd be willing to receive the truth instead of a false hope, instead of a beautiful lie. So at those moments when they might not like what he was about to say, like including Samaritans in his kingdom, that did not sit well. (laughs) Or, Or the truth that he and they would be rejected by the elders of Israel. That doesn't sound good. He accompanied those truths with works, with actions that demonstrated his authority and his power. Knowing their thoughts. So he would show them, I know your thoughts. I I know what drives you. He'd heal the the blind, restore the lame. He'd multiply bread. In the midst of that work, he said challenging things. Right in in the immediate wake of his power, he said truth. And that was an accommodation to human weakness. They became open for a moment to truth instead of a lie. And he knows, oh, he knows that uh, unless his goodness and his mercy are right in our face, his goodness and kindness right in our face, we are more likely to just push aside and reject his words and his commandments. Unless his goodness is right there. But what do we do when there's less immediacy? What what happens when the memory of a blessing feels distant? Because we'll have those times, right, where he does something good to us. We feel his kindness. We feel his, his mercy and power. 
But the immediacy fades, right? We forget. It sort of dies on us. But then, but the challenging words remain. If we open our Bibles almost anywhere, the challenging words are there. What happens when the goodness begins to fade in our memories and yet the challenging words are there? Or they come with fresh insistence. We enter some circumstance where we need his words. What do we do? We only know. We saw this last week. We only know what we'll do when it's put to the test. We can conjecture and speculate, but we don't know until it's tested. And so that's what we see with the disciples in John chapter 6. There was a wonder. And then he brings them to challenging words. So the night after Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish, and he fed 5,000 men plus an untold number of women and children, he then walked three miles across the surface of the Sea of Galilee. And he joined up with his disciples as they're struggling, rowing against the wind. And they see him walking on the water. And then as soon as he gets into the boat, suddenly they're at their destination. They were in the middle of the lake. And then they're there at Capernaum. That's echoing in their minds. The feeding of the 5,000. Jesus walking on the surface of water. That's echoing in their minds. And right now, as they come to Capernaum, and Jesus walked into the synagogue, and he sits down, there is a crowd of 5,000 men making their way around the lake and joining them there at Capernaum. This is a potential army. 5,000 men and they all know Jesus could just feed us with a few loaves. We are mobilized. He's got the power to walk on water. He can change our physical position. He could just move us. This is the ultimate leader. This is the ultimate general. Surely, this is the time to consolidate the power. This is the time to begin the new kingdom. Surely, and it appears that his followers, most of them at least, expected something like this to happen. It's the most logical thing. It makes sense. This is it. You're the Christ. You're the king. We, we glance back up. The crowds were ready to make him king. They wanted it. And then he goes into the synagogue and starts saying some of the weirdest things that have ever been said. And the weirdest things certainly within his ministry. At first, it's not too strange. So we're looking together, beginning in verse 25 and following. At first, it's not too strange. He knows what they're thinking. Correctly, they are thinking, this is the prophet that God promised to Moses who would rise up and be like him. And he knows, Jesus knows, they're making that connection because they said it. it. That's what the rumor is. They're making connections. Okay, big crowd being fed in the wilderness. Oh, 
yes, Israelites fed by manna in the wilderness. He's doing it. He's being the Moses figure. Lots of them are thinking, long-awaited moment here. This is a new Israel for a new era. Rome is our Egypt. He's consolidating. He's going to lead us in revolt. He's our Moses. Let's get on with the signs and deliverance. Like, how about a plague or two? This would be a great moment for a plague. Just call down, destroy one-third of the Roman garrisons in Israel. There is no reason they should not have expected that. This is the prophet, so it makes sense. To the surprise of all, Jesus is having none of it. He is not, in fact, interested in the expectations of the crowd. He cuts right through the earthly calculations, cuts right through the earthly hopes, cuts right through these particular kingdom expectations. And John highlights the, the, the cutting move of his teaching here by putting the statement first. I mean, Jesus said certainly many other things at this moment, John records and he puts right up front. So it's the leading statement, verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. He cuts right to it. What you are after is perishing. You don't actually care about the sign. That's what he says. You're here not because you saw a sign. You don't actually care about the sign that points to my authority. That's what the sign was about, that I have all authority. On the Son of Man, God the Father has set his seal. You, you don't care about that. You want more of the good feelings that you had. You ate. You rejoiced. Like we pointed out last time, that was an awesome time. When, when the, the Lord's multiplying bread and the disciples are sharing it out, that's awesome. They were laughing and rejoicing. This is terrific. They want that. They want more of that. You ate, you rejoiced, you felt taken care of. You would love a steady diet of that. Fun and full tummy. You want that. Fun, full tummy. Bread and circuses, that's what the Caesars gave to the Romans. Bread and circuses, that is how they consolidated power. You read any Roman historian... And that, they point to that as that's how Julius Caesar consolidated power. That's how Augustus Caesar gained the popular support. Bread and circuses. That's what people want. Jesus is saying, that's what you want. But you miss the point of it. That sign was about lasting things. Not earthly things, lasting things. I was showing you that I have the power of eternal things. I have the power of God. And yet, here we are. 
Here you run across the shore of the lake, not at all curious about what I am planning. You've got plans. He's sitting there in the synagogue pointing this out. You've got plans. That's why you're here. Does it occur to any of you to just wait and see what my plans are? Maybe they feel a little sheepish about this because he put his finger right on it. He's dead on. Okay, then. Someone in the crowd speaking for them says, what must we be doing? So be doing the works of God. There is no reason to suspect that they're not in earnest, that this is not a serious question. This is a serious question. They're ready for rules. Of course, he is the prophet. They believe that. He's the super rabbi, the Moses figure, and he's going to give the correct interpretation of the law. That's part of what people understood when Jesus was teaching, is he's giving the correct interpretation of the law. They want that. He's going to tell them which laws are most important. He's going to tell, tell them how to keep them so that they can be in good relationship with God. They can be in right covenant as the people of Israel. So they're saying, give us the rules. We're ready, to be your, we're ready to be the kingdom. You the king. We're going to take it by force, but give us the rules. In the ministry of Jesus, this is the crucial moment. Well, it's one of them. There's, there's a series of crucial moments. And John lays out the ministry of Jesus and the accomplishment of his mission to save the world. Uh, this is one of those moments when there was another way that was clearly open. Jesus could have taken things another way. A massive crowd is ready to be taught the law. This is, right? There's buzz. In, uh, if you, you hear about or you read church planting books, these are books I refuse to read. What they talk about, I'm told, is you try to get buzz this is a kind of excitement a, um, so that no one's thinking. <laughs> you just want excitement. That's what is happening here. There's buzz. This, five, this crowd of 5,000 could easily become 20,000 in a couple days. All Jesus has to do is lean into it. Make some more bread. Supply them. They're ready to follow him. It's revolt time. But they are open to rigorous religion. But with one sentence, he could have gone that way. Jesus turns away from their vision. He turns away from consolidating power and building up an earthly kingdom, and he turns to the cross right there in the synagogue of Capernaum. They ask, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And he says, this is the work of God that you believe in, that you put your trust in him whom he has sent. This is the work. 
Well, what he means, as we'll see, is the one work God requires is faith. Faith in Jesus. Put your faith in him. Put your trust in him. Entrust your life to him. Entrust your vision to him. Whatever he does, whatever he says is true. Trust it all. What they want and what they ask for are works. Give us something to do. Give us rules, specific laws, actions that, that we can measure, that we can evaluate, that we can determine how we're doing so that we can be judged and judge each other by externals. What God requires is one work, acceptance of the loving grace of God given through Jesus. That's the work, to accept grace by trust. Well, whoever's there in the synagogue speaking for, this, for the crowd doesn't quite follow. but continuing to try to align what he's saying and what's happening with the exodus. That's what this response, okay. God gave the law through Moses. That's what they're reasoning. God gave the law through Moses. You're the Moses figure. The Israelites had to trust Moses. All right, you're asking us to trust you. They struggled to do it. But God gave signs through Moses, that this was his guy, that he was worthy of trust. So that's why they respond then with, okay, what sign will you give so that we'll believe you? They're mapping it on, all right? Y yes, we could go with this. What sign, this is verse 30, that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. They're giving a hint. This is the sign we would prefer. <laughs> well, it's, it's just as Jesus had already said. They want something earthly and perishing. They have a picture of the new kingdom and what it should look like, how it should go. Deliverance from oppression and then fun and full tummies. That would be good. Let's go there. We are like that. We're like that too. We have ideas of how things ought to go. I think, I mean, it has to be true. Every one of us today, we have ideas of how things ought to go. And for none of us does that include a bunch of discomfort, suffering, the death of our dreams. I don't want that. I don't want any suffering. I don't want any discomfort. You don't either. That is not our idea of how things ought to go. Most of our preferred plans are chocked full of what's perishing. That's what we want. Perishing stuff. It's understandable. I'm not, I'm not, berating you here. I'm with you. <laughs> this is understandable. Uh, our thought patterns we're, we're constantly shaped around immediate comfort. That's what we seek as humans, is just 
immediate comfort. I want to push away things that are uncomfortable. And it is impossible for us to avoid that. Yes, it is impossible for us to avoid trying to seek immediate comfort. Um, That's just how, how we function in the flesh. And that's exactly what Jesus means to explode here. We seek false hopes when we're just left to ourselves. You and me, left to ourselves, will seek false hopes. We need grace. Otherwise, that's just where we go. The crowd here thinks that they want the true bread. See see what they say, verse 34? Give us this bread, always. Yeah, Uh, okay, sure, we want the bread that gives life for the world. We want that bread. Definitely. Lord, give us the truth. We want it, yes. Give us the real thing. We don't want to love what's perishing. We don't want to be people hungering after the dust, wanting dustly things. Give us the true bread. And then he offers the true bread. And it sounds like craziness. We want it in theory. And then it sounds like something we don't want. Jesus says, he is bread. As the conversation, as his teaching goes on, he says, anyone who comes to him will never be hungry. And trusting in him will never be thirsty. It's the Father's will, he says, that everyone who recognizes Jesus for who he is, everyone who puts their trust in him, will have everlasting life and be raised up at the last day. But then he goes on, sounding weirder. Somehow, He expects his followers to eat him in order to get the everlasting life in the kingdom of God. This thing that we all want, this thing that everybody there that day wanted, he says you get by eating him and drinking him. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Somehow we become one. And then verse 51 sums it up. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread... He will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Being part of the eternal kingdom of God that goes on forever depends on eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It sounds strange to our ears, right? 
how much stranger to theirs. We know all about the Last Supper. <laughs> we celebrate this week by week. We know about the ongoing, symbolic, sacramental connection that Jesus established when he said, this bread is going to stand for my body. This bread will be a sign for my body that's going to be broken. This wine is going to be a sign of my blood that's going to be poured out. This meal, bread and wine, are going to point to my sacrifice so that when you eat it, it will be a sign of participating in that death. When you eat it, it will be a sign, it will be a way for you to put your trust in that death. And yet still his words sound jarring to us. So can you imagine sitting in a, a church service in a synagogue in Capernaum and Jesus tells them, you got to eat me if you're going to live. What? Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Who can receive this? Even though Jesus then had, he went on to explain that the words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. I'm speaking to you of spiritual things. I'm not literally talking about, he tells them, this is spiritual teaching. But from verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. This was the test. This was the test. In the shadow of the wonder and the signs, where he expressed his power and authority, came a test, and will you receive his words when you're not actually eating bread? When you're right before you is not somebody who uh, was lame and is standing up. having seen his identity as God demonstrated, would they surrender and trust when they didn't understand what he was saying? When they didn't understand his teaching? To make no doubt of it, Jesus pushed. This is so obvious that he's pushing here. That he pushed them with a truth that they couldn't make sense of at the time. It, it's true. It wasn't that Jesus was speaking in riddles. He was saying something true. But they did not have any context for it at the time. They didn't have any way of making sense of eating his flesh. So it was, it was simply a revolting thought. And yet true. So his concern here was for them, will you trust me? What he's offering there is, will you trust me? And by trusting me, receive me. By trusting me, receive the bread. What we just did there in the flesh, in the synagogue, he does spiritually. He offers himself, he offers truth, the word of truth to be received. The way they eat it. The way they receive him 
is trust. Will we accept you? If you'll put your faith in me, you will be spiritually eating me. So each person that day decided whether this Christ, this Jesus, a real Jesus, not just a theoretical Christ, this one, working power and teaching strange things, could this guy fit with their vision of Christ, who the Christ would be? If they decided that they knew best and that their Christ would consolidate power and defeat Rome, this strange teaching that alienates people wouldn't work. Because their Christ, and we often do this too, God's Christ would only speak in ways everyone can understand and that would alienate no one. The Christ that we want and imagine will alienate no one. Everything he said will be comprehensible, palatable, pleasant. And so many went away unsatisfied. The other choice was the decision of the 12. Jesus asked them, do you also want to go away? to test. What's in you? What's emerging? I'll just say one thing I said last week. Tests are for you. Tests are for us. God already knows. He's not, he, doesn't, he does not throw things in our way to find out what we're going to do. If we think about God like that, you have just imagined a, a Greek God who has no notion of the future, who is like a person. He knows what is in us and what we're going to do. Tests are for us so that we will know what's in us. And so he says to the 12, are you going to go away too? What an exciting moment. No. They realize it's a, this is a wonderful moment. No. No, we're not. Lord, where else shall we go you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed. You, you can kind of imagine it dropping in place, solidifying. No, we're not going away. We have believed, and we have come to know you are the Holy One of God. And whatever you say, weird as it may be, you have the words of life. There's nowhere else to go. We will trust you when we don't know what you mean. And that is our question. Will you? Will you trust him when you don't know what he means or why things are happening the way they are, when it's not going like you want it to? This is not your vision of the Christ. This is not your vision of how life ought to go, how the kingdom ought to go, how the church ought to go. The church is full of idiot people. Why does he let them in? Will you trust him? You will if you have come to know he is the Holy One and that there isn't life anywhere else. Perhaps you've tried it. 
you may not understand, but you know his words are life, and they give life. And you may reasonably doubt the outcomes. You may reasonably doubt, if I obey the Lord as he's shown the way that's good, that's going to be rough. You may have that. That's reasonable. You may reasonably, perfectly reasonably expect hardship and some suffering that goes along with trusting. In fact, that's guaranteed. What is never promised is smooth sailing. What is promised is some rough times. But you know that he is trustworthy and that he will, in fact, keep your life eternally. He's got it. He's got you. He holds you. So there's no promise of smooth sailing. There's no assurance of bread and circuses. The opposite. But there is assurance of abundant life forever. Meaningful life. Purposeful life. And a hope that cannot fail. Of a life in a renewed state where everything is made right. We don't see it now. We see in part. We see in a shadow. We see in a mirror, dimly. Our faith is that we will see it face to face, fully. And we receive this by a work, one work. What are the works of God we must do to get this? There's one work. The work of faith. Jesus names this as a work. Don't miss that. There's a, a whole sermon probably worthy of talking about this. That He calls it a work because it is a powerful exercise of the will. Because your flesh and the world and people around you may scream to do otherwise. But faith engages the deepest part of you in order to trust God and to act on the basis of trust, to act on the basis of what you have known. He is the Holy One. I can trust Him. And that is a work. Take heart. We're not just left to ourselves to do that work. The Holy Spirit is given to us to give power to your will in that. He gives his spirit to empower a move of the will. And when the tests come, and the tests will come, they must come, he gives us enough grace to trust him. My grace is sufficient for you, for any circumstance. So however far we're willing to trust him, we will find him trustworthy. However far you're willing to trust, you will find him there trustworthy. Lord, you are so good. And we, we under-trust you. We underestimate you. 
constantly. But you're so kind to move with us, encourage us along in grace. Thank you that you have helped us. Thank you that you have given us truth, recorded, unchanging in your word, that we can come back to what you have revealed. And it's always there, always there for us. Lord, I pray that as far as we are willing to receive your words, you draw us into the word to receive it. Give us a heart to do so. In Jesus' name.